Sounds kind of cool. Um, we're going to be looking at the life of Samuel as we continue in our series going through the Old Testament. Our series entitled Long Story Short. We're moving very quickly through the whole Old Testament to look at these different key figures and key books of the Old Testament and to learn from these books. They're in Scripture. They're a significant part of God's Word because there's truths, there's things about God that He wants us to know. There's things about ourselves He wants us to know. And we learn those things as we get into and, and allow the, the entirety of Scripture to speak to us and to speak authoritatively over us. So today we're going to look at the life of Samuel. So you can be turning there. There are certain times in history where everything has looked very dark. And the world has grown bleak and full of chaos, seemingly without hope. There are times in history like that. But there are times in the darkest of times to, where we have seen a hero emerge to lead the forces of good in victory. One a recent example of that actually is the heroism of Winston Churchill during World War II. Uh, for all his faults, uh, this man who is serving as Prime Minister of Britain may well be credited actually with saving us from the evils of Nazism by not only leading Britain but really the whole world to victory over Hitler and his forces. He came to power during a time when things looked really bleak. If you know the story, the Nazis had already conquered uh, or controlled most of Europe. They had controlled a good portion of North Africa. And they had pushed the, Fr the British out of France. They had pushed them to the shores of France. And if it hadn't been for the miracle of Dun the evacuation of Dunkirk, where they basically were able to evacuate the, pretty much the entire British army across the English Channel to safety, if that hadn't happened, Britain would have fallen. And it would, have, would be a different world today. That evacuation was followed by what the famous Blitz, where uh, Hitler and his forces there... The Luftwaffe bombed London and much of England and, and Britain, killing or wounding 170,000 civilians. And it was in, mid, in the midst of all that, really when things looked the worst, that, that Winston Churchill stepped into power. And he led his country. And he really led the world. He did that mostly or perhaps most significantly, through his speeches. I don't know if you've ever heard any of the quotes from his speeches. His speeches are legendary. Some quotes uh, from speeches, he says at one point, we shall fight in France, we shall fight on the seas and oceans, we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And then another speech, he said, the whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fall, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duties 
and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. And as you know from history, it really was their finest hour. And under the leadership of this man, the most terrible world war was won for good. In our series today, we are going to focus on a man very much like Winston Churchill. A man who stepped to the forefront during a time when things looked bleak. A man that perhaps in the grand scheme of redemptive history is even more important and more world-changing than Winston Churchill. He too faced a hopeless situation. He too faced the evil of the proud. Samuel served at a transitionary time in history as the final leader among the many judges we heard about last week, and as the transitionary prophet to set the stage to lead God's people from a a dismal, bleak place of wandering away from God into a new, brighter season of walking before God under a godly king. That is really how Samuel functions in the story of the Bible. So let's pray. And we're going to dig into the life of Samuel and then make some application from the truth. So Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, that You have recorded these aspects of Samuel's life and ministry and recorded this not only for Your people who first read it and their edification, their encouragement, but also, Lord, for us today. In Your sovereign grace and wisdom, You knew that today, this Sunday, we would be talking about this truth. And so we thank You, Lord. We thank You that You want to speak to us. And Lord, You know each one here. And so we ask You, Lord, to, to bless the proclamation of Your Word. Each one here, each one listening through, through live streaming as well, Lord God, would You minister to them Your truth. Teach them about You and change our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Just a recap of his life. Samuel was born to Hannah and Elkanah. Hannah, his mother, had been through the trial of infertility. And Samuel was God's gracious answer to her desperate prayer. She dedicated Samuel to the Lord. And when he was old, old enough, uh, he was sent to live with the high priest Eli and his family and serve at the temple, this central place of worship for God's people. God called Samuel to be a prophet when he was very young. And he was a faithful prophet. He was a man who was faithful to the Word of God to listen to the Word of God and to obey, to carry it out. And he did that in a time when, when others were not doing that. Samuel came to the forefront at the end of the time of the judges. And as we learned last week, as Toby brought us God's Word, we learned that the, judges, the period of the judges was a downward spiral. And God kept on raising leaders up to, to deliver them from, from the tragedy of their rebellion and all its consequences, but they continued to get worse and worse. And the judges themselves in many ways got worse and worse. And then all of a sudden, Samuel shows up. This miracle boy. The gift to a barren mother and the gift to the people of God. To lead them in faithful obedience to the Word of God while those around him were disobeying. He served at the temple when the temple was under the leadership of a man named Eli and Eli's family, his two sons. And these two sons were terrible terrible successors to Eli. They were men who did not believe God. And they were men who stole the sacrifices intended for God for their, for their own 
dinner table. Not only that, but they actually fornicated on the temple grounds. They were blaspheming God in their actions. And these were supposed to be leaders, leading God's people in, in faith and obedience to God. And Eli did not deal with his sons sufficiently. Eli was not faithful to follow God's Word. That they, they had God's Word. They knew what was required of the high priest and his family and the people of God. And Eli regarded his sons as more important than God. Yet Samuel was faithful. In the story, God brings judgment on Eli's wicked sons. They are, they are killed. What goes on is the people of, of Israel are still in this place of, of compromise. And there's a battle with the Philistines as God would do throughout Judges. He would bring consequences of their rebellion. So the Philistines were attacking. And they went to battle and the people thought, well, if we take the ark of God, this place of God's presence, if we take it with us into battle, then we're going to win this battle. And God said, basically, you, you can't play that game with me. You know, your hearts are wrong and I'm not going to let you do that. And, and so they lost the battle. Eli's two wicked sons were killed and the ark itself was captured by the Philistines. Another side story you can read about that. ark gets brought to the Philistines. They set it up in their temple and God d demonstrates to them that He is the only Lord and God. And by making their statue of Dagon, their God, bow down before Him and so forth and just doing all sorts of things. It's a wonderful, interesting side story where God demonstrates despite the unfaithfulness of His people in Israel, He remains Lord and God. When Eli hears this news of the loss of the ark and the death of his sons, he is sitting in a chair at the gates and he's a very heavy man. Most likely, I think the implication is he got heavy on the sacrifices stolen from the temple. And he's, he falls over in his chair in shock at the news and breaks his neck and he dies. And God brings swift judgment on Eli and his household in this way. But Samuel is faithful. And Samuel steps up into leadership at that point to lead God's people. And they experience under Samuel's leadership a, a season of repentance and revival and victory over the Philistines. And things start to look good. And then the people ask for a king. Now God had promised that there would be a king who would reign, so it wasn't wrong for them to have a king. But they ask for a king because they want to be like the other nations around them who have kings. And in some ways, they're, they're asking of uh, Samuel to, to pick a king is, is rebellion against God, but God in His mercy and grace gives them a king. He brings a king to them. He's patient. And Samuel is part of choosing that king. He's part of the transition. It's just interesting to note, Samuel is faithful to the Word of God because Samuel at that point was essentially the king. He was the judge, which is like a governor over the people. And he might have thought, I'm the king. I'm the leader. I'm not going to pick a king for you. But he was faithful to the Word of God. Faithful to humble himself. Faithful to serve the Lord and be part of God's selection of that king. Well, that king is Saul, the first king he's chosen. This is an impressive young man. He's, a, he's like six to ten inches taller than anybody. He's brawny. He looks like a king. Uh, and things look good at first with, with Saul. But sadly, Saul becomes proud. He becomes more concerned about his own reputation and, and his own comfort than the glory of God and the good of his people. And that orientation away from God to himself and his own comfort and his own reputation leads him into blunder after blunder. He fails to act. He blatantly disobeys again and again. 
Samuel was grieved over Saul. And the Bible actually says that God regretted that he had made Saul king. That's how terrible it was. Similar wording to earlier in the Bible when he talks about the judgment he brought through Noah. He regretted that he made mankind. Saul had, had gone, become that bad. But even in this terrible failure of their first king, there's hope. There's Samuel remaining faithful to the Lord. There's Samuel obeying the Word of God and in doing what God says. And, and Samuel's faithful to be used by God to choose the unlikely successor to Saul. And this time around, it's not like it was before. They choose somebody that is not impressive. Just a boy. The least of his brothers. A mere shepherd. A man after God's own heart that not even Samuel is expecting. He chooses David who becomes the exemplary king of Israel. And he leads them not only to military victory as he resumes, as he assumes his, his kingship, he not only leads them to military victory, but he leads them to spiritual victory and prosperity. The people of God start to follow after the Lord. And the ark is restored under David's reign into the, this new city of Jerusalem which becomes the capital. And that's how the story of Samuel's life ends. It ends with this great promise of David as he comes on the scene. That's briefly Samuel and his life. So what sort of lessons are we meant to learn from this life? What things can we learn? Why was this put in the Bible? Why is it recorded in Scripture? What were the intentions of the, the original author of this part of the Bible? What were God's intentions through that author for the original readers? What are His intentions for our lives as we reflect on this? Those are the sort of questions, by the way, whenever we look at God's Word, we want to ask those questions. Why is this here? Because God could have written volumes and volumes of, of books and books for us to know. He chose the Bible and the very words in the Bible strategically, intentionally. And, and He used authors who also were choosing what to write with, with strategy, with intentions in mind. So we always want to ask, what's who was going to first read this? What was the author thinking? And then behind that, in the grand scheme of things, what, what is God thinking? What does God want us to know? Now, there are probably a lot of ways to answer that as we reflect on 1 Samuel, on Samuel's life. But I want to dig into some key things here. First, I, I, I want us just to recognize that Samuel serves as this key figure who straddles this transition in history from the downward spirals of the judges to the prosperity of, of the kings, at least initially. He's a key transitional character. And God uses Samuel to do some wonderful things for the sake of His people. The book of Judges could have ended just with the downward spiral and then exile and judgment and that's the end of the story. But God uses Samuel as a key figure to lead them into something better. Through Samuel, basically, God saves the day. And the God who saved the day for His people at the time of Samuel's life is the same God who saves the day for us now. And so as we look at these lessons from the life of Samuel, there's, there's direct applica application to us because this is the same God. And we are the people of God. And He's a God who redeems. He's a God who steps in when things look bleak. When there are hopeless situations. When the proud seem to control the day. He steps in and works redemption. That's what this story of Samuel is about. God's redemption. That Our God is a God who redeems. 
He redeems us from hopeless situations. He redeems us from the proud. And He redeems us to be a holy people, to be His people. That's what's going on in Samuel's life. That's what God is working through Samuel's life. And those are the three aspects that I want to talk about this morning as we reflect on his life. So first, this story teaches us that God redeems us from hopeless situations. If you look in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, you'll see the beginning of the story. It introduces Elkanah and Hannah. Elkanah had two wives. Hannah was one of them and Hannah was infertile. It starts out with the story of Hannah, this barren woman. She's taunted by Elkanah's other wife who is fertile, who has children. She's desperate for answers. She's desperate for help. Barrenness, the infertility, is a very difficult struggle for couples. Very common. It can be really challenging. And the way it goes, it can start out where you're trying to have children and you're not able to get pregnant. And at first you're thinking, well, it just takes time normally. So you're patient. But then, then months turn into years. And you start to struggle. And you you start to feel alone. You start to look at other people having children and wondering why why do I, don't I have children? What's going on? And you can start to feel isolated. Like the only one around who can't have children. The only woman. The only couple. You can feel empty. You can struggle with your faith in God. You can struggle with your marriage. You can struggle with your own identity as a woman. It's a difficult challenge. And then as often is common, throw into that, that struggle, the possibility or the reality for many of a miscarriage. We don't know if that went on in Hannah's life, but I would not be surprised. And miscarriages are just a roller coaster of emotion for someone who's infertile. It starts out with hope. I'm pregnant. Finally, there's this anticipation, a promise, and then the tragic shock and darkness of losing that baby. A baby you never named, perhaps, or never really got to know. That effect, that roller coaster, plus infertility, can be devastating. And to live in that, not just for months, but years and maybe even decades, we don't know how old Hannah was. But we know that it was a desperate struggle for her. It was so desperate that she went to one of the annual pilgrimages where they would celebrate their identity as God's people. They would feast and drink and enjoy. And Hannah didn't go and do that. She wept. She fasted. She was sorrowful and she poured out her heart to God in, in the darkness and desperation she was struggling with. From that place of darkness and struggle, in her isolation and sorrow, she cried out to God. She said, Lord, if You you give me a child, I will dedicate that child to You. They'll be Yours to serve You. And God, in His great mercy and grace, answers her prayers, meets her in her hopelessness, gives her a child, blesses her with this, but He's more than a gift to Hannah. This child is a gift to the nation of Israel. He's the leader who will make all the difference in their hour of need. 
And so in chapter 2, we see Hannah's response. And this prayer of Hannah, I think we have this to project from 1 Samuel 2. This prayer of Hannah is really in many ways a picture, a, a way to view the entire life of Samuel because her response of thanksgiving captures key elements in the life of Samuel. And I'll just read excerpts from there in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. Verse 1 says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Verse 7, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. Verse 10, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. If you were listening through that, you, you heard the sort of themes that I was already pointing out from Samuel. of God being the one who delivers us in our hopeless situations. God being the one who, who exalts the humble and the hopeless as they look to Him. And God being the one who opposes the proud. And God being the one who, who raises up a king to lead His people. This act of God's redemption in Hannah's hopeless situation changes the course of history for the people of God and teaches us a clear and powerful lesson that God redeems us from hopeless situations. God redeems us from hopeless situations. This is who we, He is. And there's a call in this to look to Him in our hopeless situations. Do you know anybody who has faced hopeless situations? Have you yourself faced them? There's one person I know, I don't know him personally, but I know him through biography. His name is Adoniram Judson. He married a Havel girl. Our room here next to the sanctuary is named after him. He was part of First Church here in the Common. He went in 1812 to Myanmar with his wife, Anne, to bring the Gospel to a place that had virtually no Christian witness. His story, if you've read it actually, and, and I, can, I can deal with a lot of intensity. His story is so intense, and so horrific, I had to put the biography down at times. It was just too intense. Although he and his wife worked hard on Bible translation, were very gifted in that, and evangelism, they were faithful in evangelism, and though they had a team by their side, they saw little fruit in Myanmar. And from 1813 to 1830, they went through unthinkable hardships. Adoniram was in prison for 17 months at one point, hung upside down nightly in stocks, put in a vile and filthy prison full of vermin and garbage and death and tortured by his prison guards. Most of the prisoners who were put in there died. At one point, they had a pet lion in the prison that they kept in a cage and starved in preparation to feed Adoniram to him. And he was pointed to the lion by this prison guard. Anne was pregnant at the time and did all she could to take care of her husband. She actually was the only European at the time not in jail. 
She had favor with, with the leaders. She would bring food and she would plead and she's pregnant. She's walking miles to meet with people and to care for Adoniram. Eventually he was freed. Miraculously he lived. But the hardship cost Anne and their baby their lives. Their deaths plus the death of his father at the time sent Adoniram into a tailspin. Things got really dark. He basically lost his mind, went to live in a hut in a tiger-infested jungle, and he would lie on top of his pre-dug grave, anticipating his own death. Things looked really dark. But people were praying for him and even caring for him. There was a man, a a believer, who would stand nearby, a, a Burmese believer, and guard Adoniram so he wouldn't be eaten by tigers. People were praying and God was watching. And in 1830, things began to change. Actually, ironically, it was through the news of his brother's death. This was his dear brother whom he had prayed for for years, didn't know Christ. And he hoped would come to know Christ. He got news of his death and with the news of his death was that his brother had turned and trusted Christ. And so that news ended up being good news for Adoniram and it began to kind of lift the veil that was over him. He recovered from his insanity. God touched his life and answered the prayers of many. The result of all this, after this hopeless situation, was that in 1831, things were turned around. He finished his translation of the whole Bible in Burmese. Brilliantly done. So well done that it's actually the Bible that the church in Myanmar uses today. His translation. Did the whole thing. Finished it. They were able to ordain their first native pastor and they saw a growing church that grew within 20 years to 10,000 people. God opened up a door to significant ministry among the Karen people. And today about 40% of the Karen people know the Lord. There are about 4.5 million Christians in this nation of about 51 million people. And a majority of them can trace coming to know Christ through the ministry of this man, Adoniram Judson, who lived in a desperately hopeless situation. Our God is a God who redeems us out of hopeless situations. What are your hopeless situations? What areas of your life are so difficult that it's hard to believe that God can do something? Who are the people around you who seem beyond God's reach? Do you feel like you are beyond God's reach? What is your hopeless situation? The life of Samuel teaches us that God redeems hopeless situations to work wonders. This is who our God is. And there's a call in this to put all of our trust in Him. Second, the life of Samuel teaches us that God redeems us from the failures of the proud. Somewhat related, but distinct. Samuel's story is full of these examples of how God redeems His people from the failures of the proud. Samuel himself is an answer to that. Samuel remains faithful to the Lord in God's grace. God raises up this young man and this man to believe God's Word and to, to obey it and to serve the, the Word of the Lord and to not fail in a time when there was pride and moral failure everywhere. 
Samuel's life itself actually has parallels to the life of Samson. If you read about Samson, Samson's mother too was infertile. And God answered and brought a son and raised up this leader to lead the people of Israel in a dark time. But the difference with Samson is that he was a, a <clears throat> significant military leader, but he was a failure morally and spiritually. If you read his life, you, you see he's actually not that different than the people who had fallen from the Lord. And not that different even from the Philistines. And so Samson was a success in a way, but also a a failure. He was a leader for the time, but in the wrong way because he didn't look any different than the people around him who were disobeying the Word of the Lord. And yet Samuel, in this parallel life, probably shortly after the time of Samson even, was not only a successful military leader, but a spiritual leader who was faithful God used Samuel. God worked redemption through the leadership of Samuel. He could have left the people of Israel under leaders like Samson as they declined more and more, but He raised up a man like Samuel to lead them in stark contrast to Samson's leadership. Later on in the story, we see the contrast between the pride and sin of Eli and his family. This boy, Samuel, served as a boy under Eli amidst this terrible scandal. 1 Samuel 2.12 says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And then 1 Samuel 2.22, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And Eli failed to act. Those short statements are horrific. What's going on in Eli's leadership is, is horrific. You might think, well, I mean, give him a break. It's not him, it's his sons. And he did speak to them. But you have to back up and look at the story of Eli. Excuse me. Eli would have known the Scriptures. Eli would have known how God dealt with those who lived in rebellion. He would have known the story of of God's judgment on Egypt and their sin and, and the great plagues. He would have known the story of Nadab and Abihu who offered unauthorized incense And fire came out from the temple and consumed them. He would have known the story of Korah and the 250 other rebellious priests who rebelled against God and the ground opened up and swallowed them all. This is the Word of God. And all the instructions in Leviticus for the holiness of the priesthood would have been clear to Eli. And yet he chose to honor his sons more than the Word of God. And Samuel comes in as a contrast. Even as a young boy, when God speaks to him, he says, speak, your servant listens. Lord, your word is more important to me than anything. It's basically what Samuel's life says. I will follow your word. And he is faithful to follow the word of the Lord and obey it throughout his life. He is faithful to pronounce the word of the Lord to the the people of God as well. He's a faithful prophet who stands in contrast to Eli and his sons. It says in 1 Samuel 3, verses 19 and then to chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 1, And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. 
That's in stark contrast to Eli. Eli disregarded the Word and led the people into sin, even just through his negligence. But Samuel was a man who listened to the Word and obeyed the Word and proclaimed the Word and led the people in the Word. You have proud people and their failings and the impact on the nation of Israel that that would have led them into even greater destruction. God redeems the situation with Samuel who's faithful to the Word of God. It doesn't stop there either. If you read through the story, it's a very similar interaction with Saul, this first king. This first king that is chosen. Who falls into pride and persistent and gross disobedience. Samuel is grieved by this. And yet he's faithful to go to Saul and pronounce God's disqualification and removal of him without fear. His heart is broken. He's grieved by this. And yet God had told him to go to Saul and remove him from the kingship, pronounce that removal. So in 1 Corinthians 15.23, he says to, to Saul directly, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the Word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. It took a lot of boldness to do that. And faithfulness. That's the king. And it didn't stop there. In Samuel's grief, he sought the Lord and the Lord led him to go choose a successor while Saul is king. Samuel was putting his life on the line to do that. But God told him to do it so he was faithful to go and anoint David and choose David. He was faithful to the the Word of the Lord. In contrast to Saul who, who was disobedient, who had rejected the Word of the Lord as it says in 1 Corinthians 15. Samuel was faithful. The tragic story with Saul really reaches its conclusion and its low point in chapter 28 of 1 Samuel. Saul is at the end of his life. He's turned from the Word of the Lord. He's abandoned the Lord and the Lord has abandoned him in that. And so he uses the abomination of necromancy to summon Samuel's spirit for counsel. This is forbidden in Scripture clearly. Absolutely. The story in no way recommends this practice. But somehow in it, it's actually Samuel, from what we can tell, who appears before Saul. And what does Samuel do even at that point? He proclaims the Word of the Lord to Saul. He's faithful to proclaim the Word of the Lord. Even as Saul is doing this horrible violation of God's Word. He stands as his humble, faithful man of God in stark contrast to two proud, corrupt men who rejected God's words. Thank God for Samuel and how God raised this man up. This is not to, to focus on Samuel ultimately, but to focus on the gracious God who redeems us from the proud. That's what God is doing. He's remembering His people. And He's not letting them live under the proud. That's what the story of Samuel's life teaches us. To put our trust in God who redeems us from the failures of the proud. Guys, that's a good lesson for us today, isn't it? It's relevant for us. We don't have to look far to see leaders who have compromised in different ways because of pride and sin. Who do not have the Word of the Lord as their chief aim. We can suffer the consequences of those leaders' decisions. We can feel very vulnerable, can't we? Under leadership. That's more focused on reputation and their agenda versus the Lord's. 
We can feel destabilized by that. At all levels, whatever level it might be. Whether it's national politics, with presidents and Supreme Court justices, and senators and representatives, or statewide, or even local parents and church leaders. We can feel vulnerable when there's pride there. And it happens. Leaders grow proud. Failure happens. And it hurts us. It impacts us. Sometimes that impact is, is more than just feeling destabilized. It's actually physical, societal abuse that goes on. Government-sponsored persecution, even martyrdom, goes on around the world. Repressive rules, unjust laws harm people. In the family, in the church, there's betrayal of trust and horrific things like sexual abuse. The statistics are sad and scary. One in five women are abused. And many of them by family members and leaders in their families who are meant to protect and care. This reality is real and terribly real for far too many. But this story helps us. This story helps us because God cares about the f- coming in and redeeming us from the failures of the proud. He does that for national Israel through Samuel. A man who leads them in integrity and in the Word of the Lord. When, when under Saul or Eli's leadership or Samson's leadership, they would have been led into abuse. God intervenes because He cares for His people. And, and we look through the life of Samuel to a better Samuel. Because Samuel's Role was limited and imperfect. We look through the life of Samuel to a better Samuel, and that better Samuel is Jesus. Who comes as the faithful leader. Who lives himself under the oppression of the proud. Roman political oppression. Pharisaical spiritual oppression. He lives under that, and he he is subject to that. He's despised. He's rejected by men. A man of sorrows. But even more than all that, He goes to the cross. And on that cross suffers unimaginable horrors. Completely alone. And rejected. Even the Father in His holiness as Christ takes on the sins of many on the cross, turns away from His Son. And Christ suffers beyond anything we could ever imagine. We can never really even know a small drop of the vast ocean of His sufferings on the cross as He bore our sins. And as God in His holy justice treated Jesus as if He had done all those things. As if He had had the same evil desires and actions as if He had done the sorts of things that we can't even speak of. Things like sexual abuse and worse. He took on Himself those sort of sins. And the Father in His holy wrath foresets heinous things. Punished the Son for our sake. There's no greater suffering. There's no worse situation than what Christ went through. He paid the penalty for our pride, for our sins, for for any and all who would turn to Him. In His infinitely worthy death, He paid that penalty that we 
in Him, through simple faith in Him, could be forgiven for such things. Such things that we have done. Proud things that we have thought and acted upon. He went to that cross to to deal with the evils of pride and the pride of the world and to bring healing to all those who put their hope in Him. Healing for even things like sexual abuse at the hands of the proud and all the other things. Healing for persecution and mistreatment from leaders. Whatever level of authority they might have. He understands suffering. Our healing is in knowing He understands suffering beyond what we even understand of it. He knows what it is to suffer and go through such horrible things. And He took on shame on the cross so that you don't have to live in shame. You can know that all your sins are forgiven and you are treated as if you lived a holy, pure life just like Christ. So that you can know that the Father looks at you through Christ and says, clean and beloved. And I honor this one. I love this one. There's healing in Christ, the better Samuel. Our God is a God who redeems us from the failings of the proud. So run to Him. Run to our God. Run to Jesus. Put your faith in Him in all these things and find forgiveness and find healing. Finally and briefly, our God redeems us for holiness. It may seem obvious, but I think it's worth mentioning. The life of Samuel teaches us that our God redeems us for holiness. God doesn't do these things. He doesn't rescue Hannah from her situation. He doesn't rescue Israel from their situation. He doesn't bring Samuel along so people could simply be free from hopelessness and the failings of the proud. Samuel's life itself demonstrates that God's desire is for us to walk with Him. To be close to Him. To be delivered from sin and evil and brokenness. He redeems us for holiness. Not simply freedom and some abstract idea of freedom. Holiness is freedom. Freedom is holiness. They go together. To be free from your sins is to be free from your sins. It's to be holy. He redeems us to be free from those things. To walk in newness of life. We are free through the death and resurrection of Christ, all of our sins are paid for. We don't have to and we won't pay for any of them. We are counted as sons and daughters. We are members of the royal family and we are free in that. But not to go our merry way and do whatever we want. That's a contradiction. It's going back to being enslaved once again. He calls us to live in this freedom. To live in a new life. It makes no sense to have God rescue us from one bad situation only to wander aimlessly into another trap. We act at times like our dog Daisy. We had a dog, a golden retriever, and she was a beautiful dog. And, uh, and she had a problem with skunks. And I think she was sprayed by skunks about eight times. And it's a, have you ever dealt with 
someone who sprayed with the skunk, like with the, where the skunk stuff's still on the dog or whatever, it is, it is so pungent. It, it makes your eyes water and, make, and it turns your stomach. And she would get sprayed and we, we figured out that a combination of ditch, dish detergent and dilute bleach together with some soap did the job. Now she was a golden, so she had these, this long hair and a double coat, really thick. So it was a lot of work to clean her of, of all the skunk smell. And, and you'd finally get her clean and you'd be like, yes, she smells okay now. And it wasn't long after that, she'd do it again. You'd think she would have learned her lesson to stay away from the stink. I mean, I don't think she liked it. She liked other stinks, but not skunk stink. You'd think she would stay away from it, but she didn't learn her lesson. She kept on going back and getting sprayed again. And we can be like that too. Getting free and getting clean and going back to the stink. Now we have more hope than Daisy did. We have new life in us. When we come to Christ, Christ dwells in us. And there's this new nature. There's this new appetite in us for holiness. That's where your hope of holiness comes, by the way. Not in your own ability to pick up yourself by the bootstraps, but it's Christ in you. His power, His life in you. Living in the the wonder of, of your union with Christ. You're forgiven. You're beloved. And now He dwells in you and He gives you His Holy Spirit. And there's this new appetite. So we can say, no, I don't want to go back to the stink. I want to live in the fresh air of holiness. And He gives us means of grace. The Word and prayer. The church. Things like the sacraments to help us. To remind us. To strengthen us. To walk in holiness. He redeems us for the sake of holiness. That's true through the life of Samuel. Fulfilled ultimately through Christ. If the band could come up as we close. So let us embrace holiness as the wonderful reward of God's redemption to walk closely with Him, to to enjoy His love, to truly love others and serve one another effectively by walking in His ways. I hope this really brief survey of the life and ministry of Samuel has helped you in some way. I hope that you've heard God's call through it to put your trust in Him. The God who redeems us from hopeless situations. The God who redeems us from the failures of the proud. The God who redeems us for holiness. I just want to take a minute before we sing to reflect. So I just want to encourage you to take a minute to just even just to thank Him. Thank you, God, that you do this. You've done this in my life. Maybe to say, Lord, help me. I want to stay close to you. Maybe there's someone you know. Maybe it's your hopeless situation. Someone in your life who needs to know this truth. So maybe just take a minute to pray for them. And God would work and show them the good news and use you to to declare it and demonstrate it through your life. So let's just take a minute to, to pray to the Lord and then we'll close in song.